My name is Dar, and I'm an Al-Anon, and very grateful to be. Grateful to be alive and to be here. I'm going to take just a moment, if you don't mind, just to appreciate you all. After a near-death experience, I promised that I wouldn't let things just pass me by. I would notice. And I can't think of anything I would rather notice than all of you. I'd love to start calling names, but I'd leave some out. And you are all so special to me. The newest one in the room and the one that's been here the longest. It matters not. We're in this together. It is a family thing. I always think these groups are the most beautiful in this whole world. There's something shining from inside each, each of you. Some of you has just been kindled. Some of you it's about to break out. And some of you have carried that light for a while. I assume that my higher power doesn't do things by accident. So if you will indulge me, I got an envelope full of some materials from my dearest sister-in-law, who, if you would, say a prayer for Lorraine. Uh, she has uh, been a part of all of this for Dewey and I and our children and we with her over the years. But we say the serenity prayer. We just said it. And sometimes, you know, we say it so often we don't hear it anymore. And this is a brief interpretation of what it might mean, at least to the person who wrote it. And they go through it they, word by word, God... With the saying of this word, I am admitting the existence of a higher power, a being far greater than I. Grant, with the repeating of the sacred word, the second word, maybe I, maybe that wasn't a slip. With the repeating of this second word, I am admitting that this higher power is an authority who can bestow and give. Me, I am asking something for myself. If I ask, it shall be given. It's not wrong. And oh, I thought it was for so long. It is not wrong to ask for betterment of myself. For with the improvement of my character, people around me will be made happier. If you doubt that, check with my kids. Serenity, I am asking for calmness, composure, and peace in my life which will enable me to think straight and govern myself properly. To accept, I am resigning myself to conditions as they are right now. The things I cannot change, I am accepting my lot in life as it is. Until I have the courage to change any part of my life that I don't like, I must accept it and not accept it grudgingly. Courage, I am asking for a quality of spirit to face conditions without flinching. To change, I am asking for conditions to be different. The things I can, I am asking for help to make the right decisions. Everything is not perfect in my life. I must continue to face reality and constantly work toward continued growth and progress. Wisdom, I am asking for the ability to form sound judgments 
in any and all matters. To know, I want to be able to understand clearly truths of fact. The difference. I want to see things differently in my life so there can be some distinction. I need to sense a definite value in love over selfishness. And I thought you might uh, be interested in hearing this. This is the way the prayer was originally written. Uh, the author of the prayer later told AA, go ahead and use it. And I like what you've done with it better than the way I originally wrote it. And it was first written like this. God grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. Wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that God will make all things right if I surrender to his will. So that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy forever in the next. Thank you, Lorraine. As always, you send me the right thing at the right time. There is someone in the room who gave me the cue for what I might say tonight. I haven't thought about this for a long time. It's kind of an updated version of a talk I made very early in Al-Anon. And by the way, if you're asked to talk, talk. Whether, whether you want to or not, whether you're scared or not, because I'm not really doing a tap dance up here. It's my knees knocking together even after all these years, but it goes away in a little bit. And so uh, in her honor, and I'm not going to embarrass her by calling her out, but she knows who she is, I'm going to try and duplicate and update what I've learned about something that's important to me. I like things, first of all, that fly. I like angels. I like birds. I like butterflies. I like angels who have always flown. I like birds who learn to fly. And I especially like butterflies because they once were caterpillars like myself who could barely crawl, let alone fly. But we do change. I also love flowers. It's been a part of our lives as a couple for a long time. And Dee, I'm especially grateful for this uh, display right here. It's loaded with daffodils. And even after all these years, my husband still brings me the first batch of daffodils that turn up in one of the grocery stores. And I look at it as kind of a promise of the serenity garden we will be putting together in our back patio. When I was a little girl, I loved roses most of all. And I wanted always to keep them. And I didn't want for them to get snowed on and to disappear. So I remember, I don't know how old I was, four probably is my best guess. I took a whole bunch of them and I put them in a box and I put them in my bedroom closet 
and I kind of forgot about them. And winters in Minnesota are long, and you long for rose time. And early in the spring, Mom was saying, I wish it were time for the roses to bloom. And I said, I've got roses. And I ran to my closet, and I get out this box, and I open it, and I begin to cry. The roses are all dead, and they're all falling apart. And she told me not to worry. There would be more roses in my life. And there were. When I met Dewey, I met him where I would be able to find him, in a bar. <laughs> and I was wearing red from head to foot, a bright rosy red. So even though he'd had quite a bit of drink, he couldn't miss me either. And that was the beginning of our days of wine and roses. And it was exciting and it was fun for quite a while. Although some of his friends hinted to me he might have some kind of problem. Okay. I don't know what they were talking about. We always partied, we always drank, we always laughed a lot. Whether things are funny or not, you know, how it is. If the music is loud and the company is, is fun and sociable and you're young, okay, and you think the world is going to be your oyster, and you think such problems as maybe drinking too much are something that will be solved if you marry the man. <laughs> you know that old saying, the expectations of men and women are totally different. When you marry, the wife expects the husband to change. And the, and the husband expects the woman never to change, and both are doomed to disappointment. <laughs> so we moved quickly after getting married from the days of wine and roses to four roses. There was more drinking. Uh, there was less fun, at least for one of us. Okay? I assumed he was having a good time. I didn't see him enough anymore to know for sure, but... Uh, I suspected that he was, and I thought, well, it's time, you know. We're married, uh, we're having a family, it's time. And I didn't know one blooming thing about alcoholism. I didn't have a clue. Okay? All I knew about alcoholism was that they called the old man in our hometown who would drink in the streets and pass out in the parking lots, alcoholics, and he wasn't doing any of those things. Okay? So it never dawned on me, you know. And it never dawned on me how you became an alcoholic, you know. I just thought they arrived that way. Old men who got drunk and couldn't find restrooms and things like that. So I began to be very puzzled about it. And this beautiful relationship wasn't as going as well as it was during the days of Wine and Roses. I have since read the poem from which the title the days of wine and roses comes and its last verse is potently true it says they are not long the days of wine and roses the roses were gone but the wine wasn't now he didn't drink wine he drank beer but by now most of us know it doesn't matter what form it comes in it's going to do its number not only on the one who drinks it but those who care about them and their children, who I believe in our case suffered more from what it did to me 
even though I wasn't drinking it, than what it did to him. They didn't see that much of him. And when they did, he would empty his pockets and, and take them to do fun things and buy them whatever they wanted. And they had to live with the shrew all the time, who was never happy and who wanted them basically to just stay in bed and sleep. Our children still claim that they don't need to sleep much because they had to do so much of it when they were little. But a mother who's been up all night worrying and waiting and planning what she's going to say, thinking if I say the right thing, that'll fix it, uh, she's not good for much the next day. She's not very patient with anybody. And I would say things like, don't bother me, I'm busy. And they'd look at me, and sure, I was busy. I was sitting in my chair smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, and plotting my next move. And nothing I did helped. So therefore, I assumed it must be me. Okay, so I'll change. So he'd say, go to work. I wouldn't drink so much if I wasn't so worried about money. So I'd go to work. And he'd say, quit your job. If I didn't feel so guilty because you were working, I wouldn't drink so much. Okay, we tried all the things. Nothing made a difference. And I became very, very sad and very, very lonely. And I tend to be a drama queen anyway, so I listened to a lot of sad music. I'm kind of glad I did. I developed wide tastes in music. I love the blues, of course. You figured that. I love jazz. I love sentimental songs that make you cry because I would tell myself I'm a grown-up, I shouldn't cry, but you can cry when the music hits you right and, and you think that's okay. And you can find sad poetry. And I read something that entered my being and I don't know where it came from. I heard it on some TV show and I'm not good at memorizing things, but I remember it having heard it once. And it said something like this. I hear them say, as her family mourns, that she bears the bite of a thousand thorns. I think she did not die from thorns, as everyone supposes, but merely from a lack of roses. If anyone ever finds that, <laughs> get it to me. I want to know who wrote that. I don't want to know if she's an Al-Anon, actually. <laughs> and I've heard so many people whose family members are alcoholics say, my life was no bed of roses. Mine once was. We were living in this dinky little place in Minneapolis, and it was two stories over here and one story next to it. And we lived up here in this second hot little store up here because we needed our money for more important things than rent. Okay. And uh, my husband, in his worst of days, always, always, when he was in his right mind, would want to be, do the kind, the loving thing. And uh, so one evening, he was working nights and I imagine it was, you know, morning-ish. But I was sound asleep, as were our two, at the time, two children. And he stopped at a little shop 
that sells roses and we were living in Minneapolis and he bought this big bunch of roses now I don't know but I suspect they had a real good deal because it was an awful lot of roses and he came proudly to give them to me and he came up the stairs and he knocked on the door and we had these rickety wooden stairs and he made it up there and he knocked on the door no answer I'm sure that he knocked at the door again and again and again and I thought when is this woman going to wake up and open this door maybe she's locked me out I don't know what went through his mind but by the time he had to climb the roof of that little side building and come in the window I got a bed of roses he just threw them in there and he said here are your roses it took a while for that to be funny but I wish I had videotape of it (laughs) I bet we'd all enjoy that tonight but wanting roses including those symbolic kinds I began to search for an answer I wanted roses back in my life I was tired of all the thorns and so I began to read everything I could lay my hands on about people who drank alcohol and I came across the word alcoholism and unlike my husband I thought it was a wonderful word it at least explained some of the craziness that was going on but I thought it was an intellectual matter so I now began to prepare sermons, speeches, talks that I would give him when he came home now I talk a lot but he's really good at it and I couldn't win unless he was really drunk but it's hard to catch him just right because often he would pass out during my best material and I thought that showed a certain lack of respect and then one wonderful day when TV was still mostly black and white I think it was all black and white I saw this number on the screen National Council on Alcoholism and I wrote to them and they sent me a letter and guess what they didn't tell me how to make him stop drinking they suggested that I might need some help I put that letter down in a hurry but I couldn't leave it down I had to pick it up and read it again and they talked about something called Al-Anon and I didn't have the courage right then to go but I kept that letter and then I was pregnant for the third time and we were going to move to Billings, Montana I barely heard of Montana at that time I'm sorry but Wyoming I probably never heard of and we're going to pack up our few belongings and go with a borrowed car and a trailer with all our earthly goods our two kids are another one on the way very shortly and we're moving to this distant place and we headed across the Dakotas in September of a very dry year and I thought my god where is taking me there's no roses here there wasn't any grass there weren't any people everything was miles and miles apart and I remember thinking oh how lonely how horribly frighteningly lonely I spent most of my time trying not to let people know what was going on at our house but it was frightening to think I would be where I didn't know anyone that I could talk to 
And so we hadn't been there very long when our disease kind of came to a head. Okay, it got really bad. It was uh, about one month before this baby was going to be born. And my husband had just said how lucky I was. We had this upstairs apartment and I hadn't had to leave it for two weeks. Okay. I didn't feel very lucky. And his alcoholism was beginning to torture him. And he knew about AA. He'd attended a meeting somewhere back where someone suggested he might have a problem and this might be the solution. But he had one of those moments in time where he called AA. And they came out. Okay. Did a lot of that in those days. Not only would an alcoholic come, but the Al-Anon mate would come on the call and talk to the spouse. And uh, that was one of those angels in my life. A red-haired lady, and I always have a special thing for them, named Alma, who seemed just as normal as could be, and yet she told me her husband was an alcoholic too. Okay. But she talked about what I might do. So I attended my first Al-Anon meeting November 7, 1961, exactly one month before this third child was born. And I assumed that was it. It's all going to be okay now. You know, he said he's an alcoholic. I didn't know how cunning and powerful and baffling this disease is for those who have it and those who love him. And in order to get roses back into my life, I needed this program, whether my husband was going or not. And it took me a while to figure that out. When I was going a lot and working these steps for myself, instead of trying to get him to do them, I was happy whether he was drinking or not. And when I didn't do what was required of me by this program, follow the suggestions of these special people who in those days were mostly women went down on, I guess that's still true. When I didn't do anything, I felt terrible whether he was drinking or not. So in order to maintain roses in our lives, there are some things we have to do like follow directions, find someone who knows how to do it, ask them what they do, and they will tell you things that look painful at the moment. I don't know how you other Westerners are, but at this point, even yet, if something is green and growing, I don't want to cut it. Okay, I don't want to cut it back. But I needed cutting back if there was ever to be blooms again. So through the program, we began to snip away the stuff that wasn't going to turn into roses, that was delaying what was needed to happen. And they taught me how to cut and where to cut. There also needs to be feed. Okay. Where you get it? From other people who've been there and done it and who will support you on the days when you can't do it when they're there for you on the sad days. You need water. Water is a flowing, living thing, and so you need to flow with it. You need to stay with it. And that can sometimes be the hard part, because at about a year's time in the program, I knew that I was probably well enough, so I wasn't going to commit suicide or murder. Okay? It's going to be able to live but not very happily. 
The rewards come when you hang around and wait, wait for the season, wait for things to begin to bloom. And then we need the sun. And to me, that's the higher power, whose presence and power and warmth makes it all possible. And we have to put it out there. Okay. Let him have his way. Shine when it's time to shine and withdraw when it's time to withdraw. And as you stay around for a while, I think you become, or at least I became, more and more aware that like roses, whose business it is, what are they for? To make more roses. To bloom and develop seeds and grow new roses. And that's a big part of what this is all about too. The job is to hang around and become fruitful and help others to grow by sharing what we've learned, by being honest. Okay. Uh, honesty is a funny thing. By five years now and on, I'd lost it all again. By then I knew so much about this program and I had convinced myself that I should be able to take care of life from here on out all by myself. And that I was there to give advice to those that struggled. And I began to struggle so terribly inside. And I couldn't understand why. And I had all this sadness and this fear and this all this stuff. But I'd go to a meeting and I'd tell you what you needed to do. And I'd smile all the way I was doing it. But ask for help. No, I wasn't honest enough to do that until it hurt so bad I had to. And I thought this would be big news to my sponsor, and she just said, what took you so long? <laughs> she was a wonderful lady. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I remember one day she walked into my living room, and there I was in that chair again, just like I'd never heard of the program, with the heaping ashtray and the coffee cup and that look on my face. Okay. And she said, yeah. I'm going to quote her. <laughs> she said, uh, you feel like hell, don't you? And I said, oh yeah, I sure do. And she said, well, when you're ready to do something about it, call me. And she turned on her heel and walked out the door. And I thought, oh, what kind of gratitude is that, you know? But it was exactly what I needed. Maybe it was a dose of fertilizer, I don't know. But it did the trick. Because it's no fun feeling sorry for yourself if nobody cares. And besides, if you've been in the program for a while, you really can't enjoy it anymore because there's that little voice that says, ah, but you know a better way to go. You know people who'll do for you what you can't do if you just tell them you need them. And it's your job to be there because someday they're going to need you. Back to the message in that little cardboard box and that four-year-old girl there came the time much, much later in life when I realized that the way to keep it was not to put it in a box and hide it in the closet but to give it away if you give it away in full bloom you'll never see it die it'll stay alive forever People in rooms like this are my roses. There is no lack of them anymore. 
and the real ones I see now are reminders of those eternal roses that don't die I'm probably going on and on I'm trying to keep some kind of an idea of the time oh I'm not doing too bad for me okay I get to talk a little bit more there's a story and I never like to tell it but I made a promise to my higher power many years ago when my father was in the process of dying having heart attack after heart attack and we rarely left the hospital and they would bring him back and he would fail again and they'd bring him back and probably at the lowest ebb I've ever been and I picked up a little pamphlet too bad I'm so honest I didn't take it with me but I remember it I remember what it said and I promised I would tell this story because it meant so much to me and maybe it would to someone else whenever there was a group of people I was asked to speak to and I usually remember to do it not always but usually and so for those of you who've heard me do it before I beg your pardon but I'm going to say it again it's about a man who was on death row and he was down to the last week of his life and he was angry and he was resentful and he felt the world had been unfair to him all his life and now they were going to kill him and as is the tradition there is an attempt to give people some comfort at such a difficult time uh, some assistance with this inevitable process that was going to happen to him and so a priest was sent to speak to him and when they told him a priest was there to speak to him he said forget it I don't want to see him what did the church ever do for me I started out in a good Christian home but nobody understood me nobody really cared what happened to me and it's too little too late I won't see him and you have these kind of rights as I understand they can't force you to accept any kind of comfort or any type of help at that point the following day the local rabbi came and got his name and said I would like to try and speak to him I hear that he's really bitter and this is not the way that you want to go home no matter what you've done so let me try and so they told him that the rabbi was there and he again no way no way if I won't speak to my own kind why would I speak to somebody who can't possibly understand me and he absolutely refused and caretakers like to keep trying so he said well maybe the local non-denominational Christian minister would be willing to give it a try and he said sure I'll try and he came and he didn't come in anything frightening you know just an ordinary business suit and uh, announced who he was and that he would like to see this man and they asked him well would you like to see him 
And he looks like somebody who'd be easy to talk to. And he said, no, there's not another human being on this earth who could possibly understand why I do what I do. Who could possibly have anything to say to me now because I'm going to die. And that's the way it is. And it came the evening of. And he'd sat down and he'd eaten his last meal. And here comes the guard again. And he said, there's a gentleman who wishes to speak to you. And he said, I don't care who it is. I'm dying in the morning. There's nothing anyone can do about it. I've never had a fair shake in this life. And tomorrow morning they're going to prove it. They're going to strap me in. They're going to kill me. So why would I want to talk to anybody? It came the following early morning hours. And they began the walk down the hall. And the warden must attend these things. Okay? It's the law. And he was there and he looked at this man and he said, I don't understand why we're doing this. And he said, well, what do you mean? Okay, you've been holding me here. You've been telling me the date. It's going to happen this morning. And he said, well, the governor sent a man over last night with a pardon. And apparently you didn't get it. He said, oh, I refuse to see him. And it's too late now. And they strapped him in the chair. And they asked him if there were any last words he would like to say. And there was a different look on his face than there had been. And he said, I guess there's just one thing I can say. Tell anyone who wants to hear that I die not for the things I have done, but for the pardon I refused to accept. And I think of this program as a pardon. We can go on with life and leave the grit and the dirt of the past behind, making such amends as we can, keeping short accounts when we're wrong, promptly admitting it, and accepting what this program has to give. The most important thing of it is that we're still human beings and we're still worthwhile and we're still loved if we just let it in. And we are still precious. And if you don't believe it, keep walking in these places. Even when you screw up, somebody will give you a hug and say, we're so glad to see you and guess what they mean it. Because we become a part and a parcel of each other. So when we lose one of us, one of us, for whatever reason, a lot still remains of that spirit. It stays with those of us who took it in and accepted it and agree to pass on what we've learned from each other. I guess that's our most important job. Along with all the things we have to do to get there, we need to accept and appreciate and be grateful. 
And you'll get lots of opportunities for that. You know, a lot of things they tell you here are absolutely true. I heard people say there will come a day when you will need to be, above all, a spiritually fit. Because something will happen and you will be totally, absolutely powerless. Now that was a hard concept for me from day one. That was the hardest thing, to be powerless. I always thought I could do something. But serenity begins to build up in us like a savings account. And if we keep it, there comes that moment in time when we are completely, absolutely helpless. Mine was at Wyoming Medical Center. I thought I had indigestion. I was having a heart attack. Uh, The fancy video showed that it was not good. Uh, They'd have to do surgery right away. Uh, They started saying three or four bypasses. I guess they ended up with seven. I put my family through a great deal of anguish. But the odd thing was, I probably was the least worried of anybody. Fifteen minutes I had to prepare for surgery. And guess what? It was in there. You gave it to me. And slowly but surely I'd learned to keep it. And and it's kind of surprising how calm you can be when everything around you is just out of control if you've learned the real important message of this program. We can count on each other. I knew the word would go out and there'd be prayers. And this may be fantasy on my part, but I don't think so. I think I felt every one of them like being held in warm hands. And I felt the presence in my room, whether it be angel, God's son, I don't know. But there was a presence there that said, what do you want? The choice, the same choice was there again, life or death. Do you want to go home or do you want to stay here? And I hesitated for just a moment, and I didn't hear words out loud or anything like that. But I knew that I knew that the question was being put to me. And I said, well, I'd like to go home, but there are things I need to stay here for. And it was just like I was settled. And I said three prayers, and this surprises me. Because I've made a lifetime of uh, reading and studying, and I know lots of formal prayers. Okay, it's brought up that way. But guess what came to my mind? The serenity prayer. The closing prayer we use, the Lord's Prayer, and one other that's extremely personal, and I'd like to keep that one, and it was extremely short. Uh, Just like it was done. And now eight years have gone by, and I remember the first spring telling God every day how grateful I was to see another spring and to see what was happening in the lives of people around me that I cared about and to hang around and to appreciate and to be grateful for the roses in my path. The big roses that I see first every morning in my life, my higher power, my husband who no longer is my higher power, my children, my grandson. He was about a year when this happened and now he's nine. And if I'm extra indulgent with him, it's because I know what a blessing it is to watch him grow. And to tell him a few things that I hope will get in there, even if he doesn't use them right away, about the importance of being grateful for the roses in our path.
so we don't have to cry those sad songs. We don't ever have to be alone again unless we choose to. And we always have got a place to go where people care what happens to you and yet don't have to explain a thing. They've had their own troubles with thorns and have learned what you need to do to grow roses. God bless you. You're a beautiful bouquet. Hey.